Welcome to the WIDA Connect podcast series, where we will explore all the hot topics affecting the equipment dealer industry. From industry news, government affairs, and manufacturer relations, to business best practices, technology, and marketing for equipment dealers, brought to you by the Western Equipment Dealers Association, here to advocate, elevate, and educate. And now, let's connect. I'm John Schmeiser, CEO for the Western Equipment Dealers Association. Welcome to this edition of Legislative Landscape. Like past podcasts, this edition will focus on current events in Ottawa. In late March, Finance Minister Christia Freeland announced that the first federal budget in more than two years will be delivered on April 19th. The budget is expected to provide a full accounting of all government spending through the pandemic, which has sent the deficit for the fiscal year to almost $400 billion. It is also expected to outline the Liberals' plan to spend between $70 and $100 billion over the coming years on stimulus to help the economy recover. Budgets usually identify current needs while addressing longer-term problems, and areas that may be under consideration include increasing supports for mental health, dealing with the opioid crisis, pursuing reconciliation, and providing supports for seniors. There have been past promises made to create a national child care system, improve skills training, and financial incentives to build a greener economy. We have seen some other posturing that puts an emphasis on business supports to kickstart an economy which coincidentally is accelerating all on its own. We're seeing an unexpected acceleration of housing prices, and one can question the merits of adding more spending that would accomplish little beyond overstimulating an already hot economy, which, of course, will surely surge even more once the pandemic has subsided. In the past 13 months, an estimated $122 billion has flowed to Canadians through labour market supports, such as the Emergency Response Benefit, the Canadian Emergency Worker Support Benefit, the Subsidized Rent Program, and Enhanced Employment Insurance. It is projected that the comparable figure for these support programs in 2021-22 will be less than $43 billion, reflecting a gradual phase-out of aid measures. This budget will be the first for Finance Minister Freeland and comes amidst a lot of criticism, as Canada was the only G7 nation to govern without outlining their spending plans in a budget. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, it will be a full two years that Canada has gone without a budget at the federal level. The signs of a spring voter everywhere, notwithstanding the Prime Minister's public posturing against calling an unforced election. Ads highlighting the merits of government relief programs are airing. Russian and Chinese sanctions are being deployed to stiffen our foreign policy spine. And announcements supporting electric cars, seniors, high-speed internet for Quebecers, and innovation are gushing forth. The trick for election-hungry Liberals is to find a way to make their budget severely toxic to diverse opposition interests. It will be a challenge to upset conservative savers, NDP spenders, and bloc separatists with such united gusto that they'd be willing to put their fate in voter hands just as the vaccines are going into Canadian arms. Because the government has received such a failing grade on the vaccine rollout and the additional COVID travel restrictions are an annoyance, 
a better bet would see Trudeau framing the budget as a post-pandemic policy revolution which demands a fresh mandate to implement. Yet there's precious little pre-budget chatter about the real villain in this pandemic, and that's, and that's a lousy public health care system, which finishes at the bottom of the G7 countries in hospital beds per 1,000 residents. And yet public health seems to have been largely overlooked at the federal level as Trudeau goes shopping for votes in areas of higher poll-supported impact instead of merely boosting the health care transfers to provinces. Of almost $400 billion feds have blown in the last year, there is very little directly tied to helping provinces improve the health care delivery. While the pandemic has revolutionized the workplace, turned the boardroom into a video link, and rendered cash money as borderline obsolete, the health care system has yet to dramatically adapt to the crisis it has confronted over the last year. And yet we see an official opposition twisting itself into policy pretzels over what, if any, climate change policy they will endorse. Support to bolster public health care spending gets the silent treatment. It's increasingly difficult to resist the urge to throw things at our television sets whenever Trudeau sidesteps questions about alleged sexual misconduct of top military leaders, glosses over his government's failures on domestic vaccinations and mass production, or the political gamesmanship they deploy over simple questions on the We Charity scandal. But despite that, Trudeau may yet snatch a major victory from what should be, at best, another minority win. The most current poll has the Liberals on top of the Conservatives by 8 percentage points. And for Prime Minister Trudeau, the next month or so will be dedicated to rolling out popular creative spending, getting the problems with the vaccine rollout behind him, and insisting he wants to make Parliament work for all Canadians. We can expect the Liberals to be spewing billions of dollars wildly in every vote-buying direction, while plotting ways to render Parliament dysfunctional enough to provide cover for this early election call. My prediction? Canadians will go to the polls in mid to late June. But in terms of who will win, I'm not willing to make a prediction on that. I've learned that a week in a campaign can be a lifetime, and the only poll that counts is the one on election day. We also got an answer on a high-profile issue late last week. Many Canadians were anxiously awaiting a decision from Canada's highest court on the controversial carbon tax. The Supreme Court has ruled that the federal carbon tax is constitutional. The court dismissed the appeal that was launched by several provinces. In a 6-3 split, the court said that reducing greenhouse gas emissions is a matter of national concern. Ontario, Alberta, and Saskatchewan had challenged the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, saying it interfered with provincial jurisdiction. However, the court agreed with the federal argument that putting a price on carbon could be done under the Constitution's Peace, Order, and Good Government Clause. Our association joined several farm groups, stating our opposition to the carbon tax when it was first introduced, and we have come away disappointed with the decision. Most see higher costs forced on our farmer customers and our equipment manufacturing industry, higher costs that will affect their profitability and negatively impact equipment sales down the road. The Agricultural Producers of Saskatchewan has estimated the cost of producing an acre of wheat will increase by $12.50 by the time the carbon tax is fully implemented in 2030. This according to their president, Todd Lewis. It's commonly accepted that producers will see additional cost increases on trucking, rail freight, and grain drying. It should be noted that there were strong dissenting opinions in the 6-3 ruling. 
specifically focusing on the federal intrusion on provincial rights that were instrumental in the formation of Canada, as well as in the establishment of the Canadian Constitution. Whether this leads to further federal intrusion into provincial responsibility, or even creates a constitutional crisis, remains to be seen. Opposition leader Aaron O'Toole was quick to announce that a Conservative government would repeal the federal carbon tax mandate if elected. But in the short term, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta have pledged to work with industry as they develop their own provincial carbon tax solution to meet the federal requirements. And finally, Canadian farmers will have access to only some of the proposed $170 million in new agri-stability money after agricultural ministers reached a partial deal last week. The ministers agreed to remove their reference margin limit at a cost of $95 million and extend the application deadline to June 30th of this year. But they did not agree to increase the compensation rate from 70 to 80%. That leaves $75 billion of federal support money on the table. The change is retroactive to include the 2020 program year and is in effect until the current Canadian Agricultural Partnership expires in 2023. So six provinces, representing the majority of agricultural production, passed a motion asking Ottawa to pay its 60% share of that anyway, without provincial participation. But Federal Minister Marie-Claude Bebeau indicated that that was not likely. As you can understand, provinces are upset that the federal government would again withhold available program support money to our producers. Farm organizations expressed nearly unanimous opinions on that change, that removing the RML is a good step, but increasing compensation would have been even better. Canadian Federation of Agriculture President Mary Robinson admonished the federal government for treating the negotiations like a game when farmers have been calling on them for years, that they needed meaningful support. And that's a quick wrap-up of some of the key items discussed at the federal level. Should you have any questions on these topics or any other government affairs issue, please do not hesitate to contact us. This has been We to Connect. If you have a question, would like to suggest future topics, or just tell us what you think about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us at westerneda.com, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to We to Connect on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.